everybody. It's Kathy McNally with Take the Mic, the podcast that spotlights women who are out there speaking up for change. And today we have a prime example in Sophie Hansen. Sophie Hansen is a real life lobbyist. I have to say, I don't know if I've ever met or talked to a lobbyist before I talked to Sophie. So all I knew was the ones I saw on TV and movies. I'm kind of embarrassed to say. So they exist, and Sophie is political director for the National Association of Social Workers, which means she goes into the Massachusetts legislature and talks to lawmakers to help pass bills that support both social workers and the people that they work with to help them. She loves that work, and she shares some really good tips about how to talk to legislators not just for social workers, but for everybody. So she's going to bring her social work lobbyist hat to talk about speaking up and what it's like. But Sophie also does something else, and that is Sophie is a volunteer in the uh, speaking committee, the Speakers Bureau, at uh, a place called BARC, which is a rape crisis center, and she speaks about some personal experience So that's a really different thing. She's out there probably wearing a suit, dressed up, going to see legislators, walking around the state house. And then she goes into probably smaller rooms and shares quite a vulnerable story with people away from work. So those are two different kinds of ways of talking to groups. She is going to talk about that. So I know you'll enjoy my talk with Sophie and I will also be writing up her tips about talking to legislators yeah, on my website. Today's guest on Take the Mic is Sophie Hansen. And Sophie is the political director of the National Association of Social Workers, Massachusetts chapter. So she does a lot of talking to people about issues. But she's also a speaker in the Speakers Bureau at Boston Area Rape Crisis Center. So we're going to talk about both those very different kind of speaking situations. And I'm going to just say, hey, Sophie, and I'm going to ask you, what is your favorite kind of speaking gig? Like, what do you love to do? When you get up in the morning and you say, oh, my ideal speaking gig is this, what would it be? I think my ideal speaking um, gig, so to speak, would definitely be anything where I'm educating people about a new topic. So whether that's in my role as political director, when talking about legislative advocacy and how anybody can advocate or in my role as a speaker uh, on the bureau at BARC and talking just about, you know, affirmative consent and other topics related to sexual violence. I think it really boils down to the education piece. So you, because, well, because why? Why, What do you feel like you're doing for the audience that you like to, that the education piece feels good? I think in both instances, probably more so with the bark engagements, but you can actually see this moment in the audience where something clicks for people in their heads and oh, I hadn't thought about it that way before, or they're connecting two parts of themselves that maybe they thought were never going to be connected. And now because they've made that connection, they can go out with this new knowledge and hopefully make some sort of change. Yep. That's great. I love that too. Yep. So you you do some speaking, but it sounds like you might do some, do you do some training and workshops as well? 
Yes, so in my role as political director, I will often go to different schools of social work and speak with policy classes to discuss specifically how social workers are really primed to lobby and why it's so needed. Um, and then additionally, we host, as a chapter, we host several different events. I have two upcoming workshops specifically geared for professionals about translating their clinical skills into advocacy strategies when advocating for not only their own profession as a social worker, but for the populations and individuals they serve. Yeah, so that that is intriguing to me about your work, because as I mentioned when we were chatting, when I think of social workers, I think of people in a office with uh, clients, family clients, or small groups doing, you know, helping those people navigate change and, you know, in their lives, make things better personally. I tend not to think of social workers as advocates. So is that a hard sell to teach social workers to be advocates? And what's, tell us a little bit about that. Why should social workers get up there and talk, Sophie? Yeah. Absolutely. So I think for a long time, um, there has always been this idea of two tracks of a social of social workers or a social work degree. And you can actually find this in a majority of the schools in our state and across the country. Most schools will have two tracks, the micro track, which is clinical, and then the macro track, which is systemic or administrative leadership or what have you. Yeah. And I really want to argue that you can actually do both and that these tracks are undeniably intertwined with each other. Mm -hmm. I come from a clinical training background. I went to Simmons College, which is known for its really clinically rigorous program. Both my placements were, you know, doing therapy with children and their families. But, you know, what we are able to do with our clients is directly impacted by policies on both the state and federal level. Mm. You know, how much bureaucratic red tape do we have to go through? What kind of policies are in place for us to assist families, whether that be, you know, transitional assistance or mandated reporting laws to protect children when we learn of any kind of um, threat to the child? Those are all things that direct our work, you know, uh, impact our work directly. And I think it would be a disservice if we don't get involved on this advocacy level. And it doesn't need to be one, uh, one track or the other. So it hasn't been a hard sell in particular. It's just been reorienting social workers who have been doing clinical work for so long. I mean, we're talking 20 plus years, most in private practice to really stretch their idea of what else or what other roles social workers have been in or can be in. And so ways that we've done that is we do a Social Work Voice uh, magazine issue seven times a year, and our upcoming issue in September is going to be Social Workers in Leadership, and we interview various social workers across Massachusetts who are in roles that we don't necessarily think of when we think of social worker, and this you know ranges from deans of schools of social work to the Secretary of Health and Human Services, Mary Lou Sutters, who has her MSW, and huh. we interview these people to really bring those two together. So it seems to me, and of course, this is obvious to you, that social workers are in one of the prime positions uh, to speak out about real social problems because they are the experts. There's nobody that knows more about what's hurting families and kids, right, than social workers. They see it every day. They're living it. Yeah. So 
but, but I wonder some social workers may be, maybe they're introverts. Maybe they like that. Um, and it, it and uh, maybe they, well, when you talk about lobbying, um, what would you like, or advocating, what kind of things do you want them to consider doing, say, for the average private practice social worker? What do you, what do you, what's a good first step for them? Absolutely. Well, I first always tell people that, you know, I think when people think of lobbying, they think of corporate lobbyists on the federal level. Yeah. Um, you know, and it's scary, or they say, I don't want to be part of a quote-unquote corrupt system. There's a lot of there's a lot of things, I think, that we think of when we hear the word lobbyist. So mm-hmm. I try to distill that to lobbying really at the core of it just means to be persuading someone's opinion to mm-hmm. see your own. So mm-hmm. that can be public opinion, and we see this through letters to the editors or op-eds, And that's a great way if people don't feel like speaking, but maybe they are able to kind of collect their thoughts in writing. That's a great way to be, you know, advocating. It's also about persuading, you know, your legislator's opinion. Mm -hmm. And even though there's so much to focus on the federal level, if you're new to lobbying, it can feel extremely overwhelming. And so I like to reorient folks to thinking about on the state level, because we do have a lot of say when it comes to what's going on in our state government and encouraging them to go to their state senator or state representative's office hours. You know, most of them host some sort of coffee hour or, you know, they had 10 local events that are in the community where they make it, you know, we hope easy for them to to meet and encounter them. Um, And also local governments as well, city councils, town meetings, um, board of, you know, older people, those are also great uh, people to, to get in touch with. But to really think about, you know, educating and learning more about your legislator and then learning about you, tell them what you do for the community, what services you provide, and try to see where your priorities are. And if they line up, you can work with them on, um, you know, really changing and affecting positive change in the Commonwealth. Great. Very interesting. And I wonder, so if a social worker says, yeah, I, I want to do that, Sophie. I want to I start to go to my legislator's coffee hours. Um, do you give them, do you say, here's some issues to talk about? Or do you just say, figure out what's important to you and talk to them about that? How do you structure that? Yeah, so part of um, our, you know, my role at the chapter, so we have our own uh, list of legislative priorities, and it's based on our two-year legislative session that we have in Massachusetts. So our current session ends in just a couple of weeks. It's at the end of this month. So we're in the process of creating a new legislative agenda for the next session, 2019 to 2020. So I always share those legislative priorities with our members or social workers to say, here's what our membership prioritizes what our board of directors prioritize and frankly how I spend my day-to-day when I'm speaking with people and Mm -hmm. so that can be a good jumping off point for them to think of oh okay so here's you know kind of issues that other social workers like me care about and it can range from social justice issues to professional issues um, you know like limiting insurers clawbacks or um, something like that And if they don't find anything there that they might be passionate about, it's really just, you know, thinking about what is a barrier that you frequently encounter with a client? And is there something that we could be doing legislatively to regulate or remove that barrier? 
And I think once you have the answer to both of those questions, then you can actually approach your state legislator and say, would this be something that we could work on together? Well, those are two really great questions. What's the barrier? And well, say the questions again, so I'll make sure that we get them right. <laughs> sure. So what is the barrier that you're frequently encountering when you are meeting with a client? And is there something that the legislature can regulate to either, you know, alleviate or remove that barrier entirely? Ah, yes. Right. So, I mean, I have an example of that yeah. would be social workers are frequently encountering that they meet with a client in a whatever setting and they're already connected with some services. So maybe they already receive food stamps. They are already connected with a case manager at Department of Mental Health. But for some reason, they didn't receive a housing voucher or they're not set up for another service that um, could be really beneficial to them. Hmm. And so, so many people were noticing this, that there is actually legislation proposed that's called the SNAP gap and it would create a common core application so that a person could just enter in their information one time, present all the documents that they would regularly need to apply for these services, but instead of doing it, you know, sending in eight applications to different places, this one application would then tell them what they're eligible for based on that information in one go. Oh, Sophie, that sounds so fantastic. Right. Wow. Yeah, I, I used to run an organization called Voices from Inside, which uh, brought writing groups and performance opportunities to women in jail and released from jail. And I know that when those women get out, there is just, it's so hard. And then there's so many applications that they have to fill out and so many cracks to fall through. So. Yeah, and when you said sort of like a common core, it's almost like like uh, the FAFSA for getting uh, college aid or some common school uh, college applications yeah. that they may use some. Yeah, great. Exactly. So I I probably should know exactly what a lobbyist does, but you know I work with women who want to speak up, but I still learn about lobbying from the Hollywood movies I see. So I understand that part of your job as political director is to go out and persuade social workers who may be in private practice or working in agencies to to cast, well, I'm sure they don't have to cast their view outward because they're already looking out. They already see the problems. But to see themselves as sort of empowered, encouraged, and able to go out and be spokespeople. But what else do you do? How do you work with legislators? What kind, what does persuasion of legislators in the state level look for real in your life? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, my my day-to-day -day really varies, and it's also what's going on in the legislature. But you know, on average, if there is um, a bill that is g gaining momentum and whether that is, you know, the Boston Globe wrote an article about this topic or it's gaining a lot of traction, um, I will meet with the legislators, sit down with them and say, this, is a, this bill is a priority of our organization, um, making sure they know about the topic really inside and out. And then sometimes there's education that, that goes into those meetings with legislators. And I can tell them from personal experience as a clinical social worker, I still have my license, I still do clinical work. Um, you know, I, I talk with them and say, 
this bill would help because X, Y, and Z that I've seen on the ground, or this bill would not work or would not be feasible because of X, Y, and Z that I see on the ground. And really translating personal experience into an educating you know, moment for the legislators because their background is not social work. Yeah. I think the only social worker currently in the state house is um, Senator Karen Spilka. She has her, her BSW. Otherwise, they come from all different types of backgrounds. Some were electricians, many were lawyers, some were nurses, some were teachers. Um, but, you know, we can't expect them to be experts on every issue. And so it's up to, to me to bring that education and that voice of social workers who are on the ground doing this work into that room with them. Mm. Can you tell us an example of something maybe that you worked on this year or past year, legislative priority that you guys had that maybe you succeeded and maybe you didn't, but what that process was like? Yeah, absolutely. So there's been a, a lot of talk about the opioid crisis uh, in Massachusetts and Governor Baker had issued a, um, a bill of just, you know, what we should be doing when it comes to the opioid crisis. And there was also a, a healthcare omnibus bill, which basically just means a big bill that they bundled a lot of little bills together to create this omnibus bill. And we thought we could put our social work loan repayment program within this bill. And the reason we, we thought that this would be um, feasible is because within this bill, there was a lot of discussion of expanding mental health services and you know, requiring commercial insurers to cover these services for all, all individuals of the Commonwealth. And we thought, you know, if we're expanding these services, there's going to be extreme wait lists because we don't have the workforce to see all of these people. And, you know, there's many factors as to why this occurs, but if we can invest in our workforce by either assisting with the loan repayment program or thinking creatively about the salaries that social workers get, we'll really be investing in our individuals in the Commonwealth. Can I just stop you and make sure what you mean is like, do you mean uh, educational loans for social workers, helping them repay them back? Correct. Because okay. an average social worker with a master's degree has about um, $100,000 in debt and the average entry level salary for a social worker is $40,000. Mm. And when you so if social workers knew they could repay their loans easily or got subsidies or help, you would get more people willing to go and pay for their MSW. Correct. Um, and to stay in these community, you know, in these high need yeah. areas for longer. Yeah. The turnover is usually two years because once a social worker gets their independent licensure, they might go to a um, a hospital that pays more or other for-profit entities. But we, we know that the, that individuals who need, you know, the um, important services to fight the opioid crisis are community-based agencies that can't afford to pay social workers a lot of money because of their own budget. But we know that's where we need social workers. And so this proposal was to expand mental health services in different areas or requiring more insurer carriers to cover those services for people, but still didn't change the fact that we would have wait lists and we would still have high turnover. And so if we can invest in our workforce, we would be investing in the people to receive these services as well. Hmm. And 
that was in a nutshell, basically the conversation that I had with state senators and state representatives to convince them to at least file an amendment for that bill. And while, while that amendment ultimately did not get adopted, just having the conversation of, no, I promise this is related, um, you know, helped. I, I said my spiel for 10 minutes and then a senator looked at me and said, okay, I'll file that amendment for you. And yeah. um, it was just, a, it was a really great feeling to be able to, to bring two things together that they initially thought wasn't related and to, to make them understand that it was and to go to bat for us. Yeah, yeah, it does. It seems like it's taking the wide view, uh, you know, have more social workers. That's like one of the legs of the stool that you need if you get everything else, but you don't have enough people to service um, people in recovery, then you can't do very much. So now, so you had to, so, but when you first broach this, people probably say like, what, Sophie, wait a minute, what are you doing? So you have to do a little bit of heavy persuasive um, lifting there, which you just did with me, and you did a really great job of doing it, because when I first heard you say that, I thought, huh, those things don't fit, but you did a good job. Thank you. <laughs> so um, do you hope that you're going to, you, now, would, something like that, would you try to get it again, or what? Did, would you redo it? What would you do with something like that? Yeah, so it's certainly been something that's a top priority of our chapter for many years, because uh, we ask our members, you know, what do you want us to go to, to bat for? It's either higher reimbursement rates or assistance with, uh, you know, loan payments or salary. And I think we have to, we, we're trying to take a different approach in the sense of, we know that everyone wants loan forgiveness or some form of that. Mm -hmm. we, we know that we live in a high cost, you know, high cost of living state. We know that tuition's only getting higher. And yet we still have so many students who graduate from social work schools in Massachusetts alone. So we know that the, the want is there, the drive is there. There are people who want to help. Yep. We also know that mental health is becoming a larger discussion, something that's discussed more frequently. And so I kind of think, how can we capitalize on this discussion, on this movement when we're, think, when we're talking about everybody being able to have the same access to mental health care, how can we invest in our workforce and not just social workers, but other mental health professionals so that they can do their job and not feel like they need to, you know, work three jobs, which I know most social workers typically do yep. to make ends meet. Yep. Wow. Well, that, thank you, Sophie. That is a really nice picture of the kind of work you do as an advocate for social work and social workers and for social workers becoming advocates. It's a really nice picture. Now I want to switch because you do something entirely different in a way. It's public speaking, but can you tell us the kind of public speaking that you do for BARC, the Boston Area Rape Crisis Center? Sure. So the Boston Area Rape Crisis Center um, created what is called the Survivor Speakers Bureau, SSB for short. I think it was in 1999 where a group of survivors had come together and said, we would really like to share our stories, our narratives with the public. And we're just trying to think what would be a safe way to do that. And so then the Survivor Speakers Bureau was born and what is involved in that is, you know, if you are a survivor, any survivor, I think most people who think survivors of sexual violence are 
cisgendered females, but it's really, it's open to anybody, any gender identity, race, you know, et cetera. Mm -hmm. What experience that may have looked like. Um, You do a, I believe it was a three month training. So it's, you know, 12 weeks or so. And you meet with um, other survivors as well as a group leader, a staff person at Bark, and you craft your narrative around this. And what it essentially is, is telling your narrative or your experience with audiences of all different types and incur- and having a takeaway message at the end. What is it that you want folks to walk away with after discussing what your experience has been? Um, so it's a really, it's a really unique first of its kind bureau. And I know that other states are trying to to create their their own version. So it's really unique. Well, that's really interesting, especially the part about having a takeaway, because we often don't think when we hear about survivor stories or, or personal narratives like that of a takeaway. But of course, if you're an advocate, you have to have a takeaway. So can you say a little bit more? I mean, do you about that takeaway? Like what is it always the same takeaway? Or what do you want to leave the audience with? Can you give us an yes. example? Yeah, so I think, it, I mean, it, it definitely varies person to person. I know for male survivors, their takeaway from their story is, you know, typically, you know, thinking about survivors in a, in a different way or just emphasizing or heightening the awareness that male survivors are one in six. I know for people who have stories about child sexual abuse, it's a takeaway of warning signs or, you know, believing somebody. Um, and I would say my takeaway varies on the audience that I'm speaking with. So this mm-hmm. range from, uh, you know, fraternities and sororities and college students to children in middle school to professionals who work at the Coast Guard. I mean, it really runs the gamut of, yeah. of who we're speaking with. Yeah. Um, but my takeaway is always talking about affir- this idea of affirmative consent. Mm-hmm. While we discussed or taught no means no, and I don't think that goes far enough. I think yeah. that we need to be teaching yes means yes and asking yeah. for affirmative consent throughout that engagement with a person. Yeah, so speakers can develop what they want to leave the audience with, which is nice, rather than being told, work your story around to make this point. Exactly, and that's what part of the training is, is what do you want the audience to leave with, or what's the goal? Do you want them to write a check at the end, you know, if you're speaking at a gala, mm-hmm. or is it that you want them to, you know, to, to be thinking about something? Um, for me, often I try to tie it to some um, legislative bill that needs to get to <laughs> call their legislator about it. Yeah. Um, so it, it depends. It depends. Yeah. Yeah. So Sophie, you're out in front talking to audiences all the time, right? That's part of your job, but their kind of talking is really different as a lobbyist, advocate, political director, you are talking about very carefully created abstract things. And you might be referring to problems, but you're talking about other people's problems, uh, people in the community, opioid problems, maybe occasionally a personal story. But in the rape crisis work, it is all personal. So you go from being, you know, pretty high status, a political director, that's pretty high status, to there's got to be like a lot of vulnerability and exposure 
talking about a personal story. What's, what's it like to navigate that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, one of the first things I had said when I went into this, you know, day one of the training, which was almost two years ago with other survivor speakers, you know, I had said, I'm a social worker, I'm a political director, but I'm going to take both of those hats off when I'm in this room mm -hmm. and I'm going to just be Sophie who, you know, has this experience and wants to share it with other people for, you know, this greater good or this, this greater message that I want people to walk away with. And if my story can help carry it, then that's, that's great. Mm -hmm. And so I, I had to tell myself that though, you know, first, because it is hard to separate, separate that. And to know that if I go into a speaking engagement, there might be people I know in the audience, depending yeah. on where I'm speaking. Um, you know, fortunately, I, I have the privilege that I'm able to feel um, supported enough to be open in my story and, and having my name attached to it, because I know a lot of survivors aren't able to do that. But um, yeah, there, there is a sense of, of vulnerability, but um, I make sure they're, they're separate. So for example, yeah. I um, there have been times where I've been asked to bring in my personal story at speaking engagements that directly overlaps with my professional life, and I just yeah. choose not to speak at those engagements. Yeah. Right, right, mm -hmm. right. Yeah, so, well, I want to ask you, what got you, I mean, you're a comfortable speaker, but this is different. What, what got you to go and help out um, the, the Rape Crisis Center, what, to be part of their Speakers Bureau? What, what made you make that leap? Yeah. So, I mean, I guess it goes back to, you know, I first knew about rape crisis centers, actually not because of my personal experience, but I became a rape crisis counselor when I was in college. Um, I went to UMass Lowell, very good experience. Mm -hmm. And then I, um, when I moved to Boston, I wanted to stay connected, but maybe not necessarily volunteer in that way and started fundraising for the Boston area rape crisis uh, centers annual walk for change where it's one of their biggest fundraisers for the years and I knew they had a survivor speakers bureau but at that point I wasn't I didn't feel compelled to be sharing my story um, there were still many people in my personal life who didn't know mm. um, what was done to me and I wasn't ready to share that part of my life with them yet and so I knew this, this was a very public undertaking and I wasn't ready and then you know, I am sure a lot of people have said this, but the 2016 election, very personally for me, I, it just, it just snapped. Something just snapped in me where I didn't, I just, I wanted to be really vocal about my experience and I didn't want anyone else to feel quieted, I guess, or yeah. I, I wanted them to feel empowered as well. And I thought, I could lead by example. Yeah. So, you know, shortly after I had contacted them because they were recruiting for new speakers and um, I did the training and then my very first speaking engagement was April of 2017 and it was a really positive experience and I just felt so emboldened, you know, yeah. and then I was able to share my experience with family members and friends who I had never really told before and luckily again having that support and, and belief from them was very important 
but I just felt after a while it, it was time and I wanted to, I wanted to be out there. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Well, that must have been quite an experience for you, Sophie, be, you know, the first time to share it because so much was riding on it. And I'm really glad that it turned out so well and that you felt supported and then you kept going. Because I know that for people to see somebody like you, that is a very public position to do that must be very encouraging, very, very encouraging and inspiring. Thank you. Well, Sophie, so tell us, I mean, maybe pretend we're a social work, uh, an audience of social workers, which I'm sure a lot of them will be listening to this. Encourage us. We're social workers. We've written letters to the editor. We've done that. But now we say, okay, we want to get out there and do some speaking um, and we know maybe we want to go to a legislative coffee hour and we know what we want to talk about, but give us a little bit of a pep talk if we're just afraid to start talking. We're just, you know, shy and nervous and self-conscious. What would, what would you say? What have you learned that you can give us a tip about? Sure. Um, well, I've learned that legislators are people. I think we, we forget that they, again, they come from different backgrounds they represent the same district and area that you live in. So maybe, you know, I always say try to find common ground. So maybe you both went to the same high school. Maybe you frequent the same favorite deli shop that's around the corner. It sounds really um, oversimplified, but they know the area just as well as you do. I mean, they have to knock all those doors during campaign season. So they know exactly where, what street you're going to be talking about or where you live is. Yeah. So establishing a common ground, taking the time to learn a little bit about each other um, is I think the best place to, to start off. Coffee hours in district tend to be a little bit less formal than if you're going to their office in the state house. Yeah. They yeah. still do it either way. Um, and then if you're going to advocate about a specific issue, maybe it's a bill that was already filed, you don't need to know all the ins and outs of the bill. That's the legislator and, the, and their aide's job is to know what the language says. You just need to have a general idea of what the bill would do, what it's proposing to do. And then really speaking from a you know, passionate standpoint, there's a reason that you felt compelled enough to go to their office hours or to give them a phone call. So use what moved you to do that and speak about that specifically. Why has this bill got you up in arms? Why are you passionate that you want to see this bill passed? And talk about those points because that is what you're going to know the best about mm -hmm. is why you want it passed or not passed. And then the most important piece to, to walk away with is make sure you have a specific ask of your legislator. Mm. What is it you want them to do? Do you want them to ask leadership to bring it to the House or Senate floor for a vote? Do you want them to cast a yes vote? Do you want them to cast a no vote? Just you need to make sure you have a specific ask of them. And then the, the last piece I would say is accountability. If they can't give you an answer in the moment, Ask them if their email they can follow up with, you know, asking them for a specific timeline. Okay, so can I call you next week and check in with you? Is there an aide who is specifically following this I can follow up with? And continue to follow up with them until they give you an answer. Because at the end of the day, you are their constituent and you're either putting them in office for a re-election or 
you may choose to go with the other candidate or run for office yourself. Wow, those are great tips, Sophie. And I'm going to, when I write about this interview, I'm going to list those as bulleted steps. I think they're great. And I want to ask you, from the legislator's point of view, how, are, how is your advice helpful to them? Um, can you say more about what they want to hear from constituents and why you, what you suggested, share your passion, don't need to be an expert, ask for accountability. Why does that work with legislators? Because at the end of the day, I, I think legislators know that the power lies in with their voters. Again, you know, they want to keep their job and they want to do a good job. They chose to run for office because they wanted to represent their district and they wanted to be sure that they're voting in the way that their constituents or their district wants them to vote. And they are supposed to be representative of that body as a whole. And so if you're not taking the time to speak with them about an issue, they may not know how to vote. They don't know what the guidance is going to be because it shouldn't be about their personal issues. It's really about, well, what does my district want me to do? in terms of this bill or how will this bill affect my district when it comes to budget or you know formulas and there's a lot of conversation about the chapter 70 school formula and some districts don't get money while the others do so they really really want to hear from their voters and their constituencies so that they can make sure that they're voting in line with what you you know as their constituent want so they do want to hear from you yep so I love, I love this and I love your point that you do not have to be an expert in the language of the bill, nor do you have to be an expert in every aspect, the history of the legislation, etc. You are bringing your passionate take because the women I work with, I know that that's an issue. You want to get a PhD in the subject before you talk to your legislator, but I think for me, what I think legislators are looking at is they're looking for that personal passion and they're looking actually to you for stories and language and anecdotes that yeah. they can use to support their decision. They need to hear the actual stories. They don't need to hear um, a really well-composed like white paper on why to do it. They want to hear human stories. Is, is that true for you? Do you believe that's true? Absolutely. You know, it's written in our in the Massachusetts Constitution, as it is in other states, that every single bill that's filed must have a public hearing, meaning that there has to be opportunity for the public to weigh in. And I think that's so important because that's where you do hear all the stories. You know, some bills have longer hearings than others, depending on the content. But there have been times where I've been at hearings and they've lasted for seven hours and the legislators are there and they're listening to every word. They're, you know, they're looking at the written testimony that you send in. And I think there's a reason why we wrote that into our constitution because we know how persuasive and moving personal narratives are. And I think that's really the basis of any movement that we can make on a state or federal level. Yeah, yeah. And social workers can be great representatives, like they can bring the concerns of dozens or hundreds of constituents because they know those stories because they sit with those people all day. So social workers, as we said before, are uniquely, they're sort of uniquely positioned to be great advocates if they want to do that. Absolutely. I mean, we're trained to, we're trained to create the narrative of, of people's personal experiences when they can't and we piece together 
you know, bits, bits and pieces of what our client is telling us and then go back together with this personal narrative to that person and say, does this sound right? Does this sound like the experience that you were describing to me? Yeah. And when someone has a whole narrative, it can be life changing. Yep. Yep. Well, Sophie, if there are social workers listening and they want to get more involved, can you tell us the, the name of your organization and contact information? Sure. So it's the National Association of Social Workers, Massachusetts chapter. You can go to our website at www.naswma.org and you can find my contact information there with my phone number and my email. Um, we obviously encourage any professional social worker of Massachusetts to join our organization as a member, but even if you're not, you can contact me to, think, um, to find more ways to get involved. Great. And can you also tell us some contact information for BARC and if people are interested in becoming a speaker or hosting a speaker, how they yeah. would do Okay. Yeah, absolutely. So it's, um, if you go to www.barcc.org, um, they have, of course, their 24-7 hotline. That's more for clinical questions. But you can also call their um office number to learn about different types of services, including the Survivor Speaker Bureau, and both of those numbers are on that website. Great. Well, Sophie, thanks so much for talking with Take the Mic, and thanks so much for, for doing your good work, and keep out there talking. <laughs> Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Hey, listeners, thanks for listening to today's podcast and interview with Sophie Hansen. Hope you enjoyed listening as much as I enjoyed talking to Sophie. And she mentioned links to the organization she talked about. You'll find those links in the webpage. And you can find this podcast on iTunes, where you can subscribe and Stitcher, and also on my website. And my website is www.womenspeakup.org. And you can go there to listen to the podcast and to find out about my programs, training, and coaching to help women speak up who want to change the world. So thanks, everybody, and see you next time. And remember, whether you're at the State House or in an intimate room sharing your story or talking to your legislator, remember, take the mic.